I would ask if you would take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Titus chapter 2. We're only going to be studying one verse this morning, Titus chapter 2, verse 14. My father taught me last week that that's possible to teach just one verse. So we're going to do that ourselves. Once you have Titus chapter 2, please stand with me out of respect for God's Word. And I'm going to read the entire chapter in order to set the context. But again, for the purpose of our sermon, we're going to be looking just most especially at verse 14 of Titus chapter 2. Titus 2 says this, But you are to proclaim things consistent with sound teaching. Older men are to be self-controlled, worthy of respect, sensible and sound in faith, love, and endurance. In the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not slaves to excessive drinking. They are to teach what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children, to be self-controlled, pure, workers at home, kind, and in submission to their husbands, so that God's word will not be slandered. In the same way, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. Make yourselves an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. Your message is to be sound beyond reproach, so that any opponent will be ashamed because he doesn't have anything bad to say about us. Slaves are to submit to their masters in everything and to be well-pleasing, not talking back or stealing, but demonstrating utter faithfulness so that they may adorn the teaching of God our Savior in everything. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts, and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. Proclaim these things. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is God's word for us this morning. Please be seated. We are going to be thinking this morning about gospel-fueled good works in the year 2024 as we look at this new year. Many people know of Charles Spurgeon as one of the greatest preachers who has ever lived. He was powerful at God's Word, and he preached the gospel so clearly for so many years. But fewer people realize just how involved Charles Spurgeon was in ministering to the poor and the needy in his community. He was a man who was really marked by doing practical good works in London and really throughout the world so that the gospel would go forward. In 1879, an American temperance advocate, his name was John Goosh, he visited Spurgeon at the Stockwell Orphanage, which was an orphanage that Spurgeon had begun some 10 years before that time. And in his book, Spurgeon and the Poor, Alex de Prima describes what happened when Goosh met with Spurgeon there. He said this, he said, while the two men were visiting the orphanage, Spurgeon received a call to the bedside of a boy who was terminally ill. As he sat with the dying boy, Spurgeon placed the child's hand in his and told him, Jesus loves you. He bought you with his precious blood, and he knows what is best for you. It seems hard for you to lie here, to listen to the shouts of the healthy boys outside at play, but Jesus will soon take you home, and then he will tell you the reason, and you will be so glad. Spurgeon then inched forward in his chair, laid his hand on the boy's head, and quietly prayed aloud, O Jesus, Master, This child is reaching out his thin hand to find thine. Touch him, dear Savior, with a loving, warm clasp. 
Lift him as he passes the cold river, that his feet be not chilled by the water of death. Take him home in thine own good time. Comfort and cherish him till that good time comes. Show him thyself as he lies here, and let him see thee and know thee more and more as his loving Savior. After a moment's pause, he said with a warm smile, Now, dear, is there anything you would like? Would you like a little canary in a cage to hear him sing in the morning? Nurse, see that he has a canary tomorrow morning. Goodbye, dear. You will see the Savior perhaps before I shall. Now, Goosh, who had been quietly witnessing this scene, he recorded his recollections in the autobiography, and he wrote this. He said, I had seen Mr. Spurgeon holding by his power 6,500 persons in a breathless interest. I knew him as a great man, universally esteemed and beloved. But as he sat by the bedside of a dying pauper child whom his beneficence had rescued, he was to me a greater and grander man than when swaying the mighty multitude at his will. Now Spurgeon was, indeed, he was a great and he was a grand man in many ways. And you really can't help but when you hear that story be moved by the way that Spurgeon ministered in particular to this nameless dying orphan boy. But for the purpose of our sermon this morning, I want us to kind of think more about the context of this scene. So why was it that Spurgeon was enabled to minister gospel hope to this boy as he lie dying? Well, it was because 10 years before this, with the help of a, of a wealthy widow, he had started an orphanage for boys, which ultimately went on to provide housing for boys and ultimately for girls as well in England for tens of thousands of children and continues to this day doing that good work. You see, and here's really the point that I want us to focus on this morning, it was Spurgeon's commitment to doing practical good works towards those who were in need that enabled him to have this powerful gospel ministry. And that's an important thing for us to think about as we think about 2024. I want us to think about this. How can, how can our church be characterized more by good works in our community towards those who are in need so that we will have more opportunities to proclaim the gospel in our community? I think it's a really important question for us. Now, if you've been at Christ Fellowship for a while, you know that it's my habit at the beginning of each new year to, to give a sermon on what I think the Lord would have us focus on as a church in the coming year. And, and for the past several weeks, this issue has been on my heart quite heavily. This issue of how we as a church can be used by God in our community through doing practical good works with the intentionality of proclaiming Christ so that people who do not know him can come to know him so that we can see the gospel spread. And personally, I believe that this is an area in my Christian life where I need to grow. So I will not be presenting myself to you this morning as the example, but as someone who, by God's grace, is seeking to figure this out and grow in this area of my life uh, so that I can be more pleasing to the Lord. And like many of you, uh, my days feel very, very full. And the thought of how I'm going to fit in time in the week to do practical good to those who are poor and needy in the community feels a bit overwhelming to me as I think about where I am in this stage of life with the children I have and the different things that we do week in and week out. And uh, I'm probably right to think that many of you feel that same kind of tension in your own mind, thinking, how could I possibly add something else to what I'm already doing? If you feel a bit overwhelmed, welcome. That's okay. But I feel convicted by the Lord to grow in this area in my life. That I need to grow in this area in my life. And I think that's a good thing. 
And I am convinced that God would have our church grow in this area of ministry as well. And it's not just my feeling, because when I look at God's word, I'm convinced that the Lord himself would have us grow in this area as a church. You see, God's word clearly teaches that God's people should be involved in doing practical good works for the sake of seeing the gospel spread. And to see that, we're going to be looking at Titus chapter 2, verse 14, which is a verse that talks about who we are as Christians. It tells us that because we've been saved by God's grace, it is our nature to do good works. That's who Christ has made us to be as believers. It's something that we should be eager to do. This is a verse that shows us that the gospel fuels a lifestyle of good works. Well, let me give you a little bit of background on Titus before we dive in and look more specifically at verse 14 of chapter 2. Titus is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to his protege in the faith, Titus. Uh, they had done work together on the island of Crete. They had established many new churches, and Paul had left Titus there uh, to kind of set those churches in order to help them continue to grow, to be healthy local churches. And as you read through the book of Titus, you'll see that, that one of Paul's main burdens is that believers would be characterized by two things, by faith in Jesus and by a godly lifestyle. And really, that's what you see when you look at chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, which we just read through. You, you see him describe what this godly lifestyle looks like, both in the home and also in the workplace. A healthy church, in other words, is filled with godly people who believe the gospel by faith, but whose lives are also characterized by good works. And that's the kind of churches that Paul had left Titus on the island of Crete in order to help grow and develop. Now, after discussing the character of elders and false teachers in chapter 1, you have to know who you're going to follow and who you need to avoid. In chapter 2, as we said, verses 1 to 10, he instructs Titus on what practical godliness looks like in our lives, in the home and in the workplace. And then in verses 11 to 14, Paul does this. He ties that godly lifestyle to the gospel because the gospel is the, the root of that godly lifestyle. Uh, the gospel is the spring from which the waters of godliness flows. So look with me again at verses 11 to 14. Here's what Paul says there. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts, and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. Now, if you look at verse 14, or excuse me, verse 11, that word for is important because, again, it's tying together what's come before and what's coming now, and it shows that the motivation for living a life of godliness is the reality of the gospel. It is the salvation that we have received from Jesus Christ. The grace that teaches us to turn away from sin and to put away lawlessness is the very same grace that produces Christ-likeness in us so that we live like Jesus, who was filled with good works. That's what we see when we look at verse 14 in particular. In verse 14, we see that Christians are to do good works. Why? Because that's who we are in Christ. Because that is our nature. That's what it is to be in Christ Jesus. As we're going to see, God saved us so that we would be a people who are eager for good works. Now we're going to study this verse, verse 14, using 
two points this morning. So if you're taking notes or if you have the notes, uh, the outline handout that was given to you, you'll see it there. But two points from Titus chapter 2, verse 14. First, what, did, what Jesus did, what Jesus did, we'll see that in the first part of verse 14, and then why Jesus did it. We'll see that in the second part of verse 14. So let's look at the first point together, what Jesus did. Paul begins this way. He gave himself for us. That's uh, five little words in the English. But when you think about what those five little words means, it's absolutely amazing because who is he? Uh, he's not just some ordinary person. He is Jesus Christ. Right? You see that in the end of verse 13. This is Jesus Christ. And who is Jesus? Jesus is the Lord of glory. Uh, this is the second person of the Trinity who has enjoyed glory with the, with the Father from eternity past. This one, the Lord of glory, the eternal Son of God, what did He do? Well, it says He gave Himself. That's amazing. What does it mean? It means that the eternal Son of God, the one who had known glory with the Father from eternity past and who chose to humble Himself by coming down into this world and being born a baby and being laid in a manger, He chose to go farther down still. And how far did he go? He went to the point of death on the cross. The Lord of glory is hung on a cross. He's crucified. He gave himself. Who did he give himself for? He gave himself for us. That's for sinners like you and me. The Lord of glory was sacrificed on the cross as a substitute for us. You know, just like you see the lambs in the Old Testament over and over being sacrificed as a substitute for the people of God, the people of Israel in the Old Testament. In the same way, Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, he gave himself as a substitute, as a sacrifice in behalf of sinners so that we might be forgiven for our sins, so that we might be rescued from our sins. And that's really the gospel. And this is really the heart of Christianity. So if you're checking out Christianity, you have to understand that the very heart of Christianity is not a system of do's and don'ts. It's not a system of religion about how you're a nice person so that God will like you. That is not Christianity. That's every other religion on earth. No, Christianity is utterly different in the fact that it is a message. It's a proclamation about a person and his name is Jesus. Because we were created by God to have a relationship with him. Uh, God, the one who created us, he loves us. He would desire that we would walk with him and that we would know him. But our first parents, Adam and Eve, they turned against this good God. They decided it would be better for them to live for themselves instead of living for them. And so they went their own way. And we sinned in them. And because we come from them, we've all inherited the same sinful nature. So that from our earliest moments, what feels right is not loving God and serving him. But what feels right is serving and loving ourselves and putting ourselves at the center of our lives. And that leads us to sin against God, and it leads us to sin against others in countless ways. And everyone sitting here, preacher included, has sinned in countless ways against this God who is good and who loved us and who made us and who wants to have a relationship with us. But God did not leave us in our sin. You see, there was no way for us to save ourselves. There's no good deeds that we could do that would somehow make us right with God. If we were to stand before God on our own, we would all be condemned. But in amazing love, the Father sent the Son into this world. And the eternal Son of God came into this world specifically to live the kind of life that you and I have failed to live, and then to offer himself, to give himself for us on the cross, to lay himself down as a substitute for his people. 
on the cross, Jesus bore in himself the wrath of God against the sins of all who will turn from their sins and trust in him. He died, but then he rose from the dead. And now the gospel proclaims this very simple message, that if you will turn from your sins and put your hope in Jesus and Jesus alone, if you will repent and believe in Christ and put your hope in him and him alone, you will be forgiven. And that is why he gave himself. That's why the Lord of glory gave himself, so that you might be saved. And so, friend, if, you, if you're hearing that message this morning, and if you understand that salvation comes by looking to Jesus, our, our plea to you is that today would be the day of salvation for you, which is to say that you'd cry out to God even now and ask him to be merciful to you and ask him to rescue you from your sins and know that he's a gracious God who will do that, who will welcome you and who will receive you. You know, just six little words in English, but they pack the very heart of Christianity in that Jesus, the Lord of glory, would give himself. Now, friend, if you have never, if you've never put your trust in Jesus, do that today. Christ Fellowship, look at those words again. He gave himself. It means that Jesus, in giving himself, is setting an example for us of what it looks like to follow him. And that those who are going to follow Jesus must be willing, by God's grace, to give their lives away for others. To give themselves away for others. And that's costly. That requires a death to self. But you know, that's what Jesus did. And that's what it looks like to follow him, is that we would give ourselves away for others as well. Now, a second question this morning why Jesus did it, or second point, why Jesus did it. Look at the rest of verse 14. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. So in the second part of verse 14, Paul's really filling out our understanding why it is that Jesus gave himself for us. Here, Paul really spells out clearly for us what it is that Jesus accomplished through the gospel. And through the cross, and looking at this verse, you see four reasons here why Jesus gave himself for us. First, Jesus gave himself to redeem us from our sins. Paul says to redeem us from all lawlessness. That word translated redeem there in the Greek word, it speaks of buying someone back from slavery because you and I were enslaved to our sins and now we've been bought back through Christ and now we belong to God. Lawlessness there talks about our sin, talks about the way that we have sinned against God and failed to live in a way that's pleasing to Him. You see, before Jesus sacrificed Himself for us, we were enslaved to our sins, and there was no way out. But through His sacrifice, we have been set free from both the penalty and the power of sin in our lives. Second, you see that Jesus gave Himself to purify us. He goes on to say, and to cleanse for himself a people. So it's not just that we've been redeemed, but we've been cleansed as well. We've been washed clean. What does that mean? Well, it means that the stain of our sins are gone. It means that when God looks at us, he doesn't look at us as kind of clothed in filthy, dirty rags. No, now he sees us as washed clean. We're robed in the very righteousness of Christ. One commentator put it this way, sin makes us guilty and dirty, but grace makes us innocent and clean. So that when God looks at us now, he sees us as holy, and he sees us as pure, and he sees us as clean in his eyes. 
And that's really good news for you because perhaps this past week you have struggled to be pure in heart. And you need to hear the gospel that by God's grace, if you're trusting in Jesus, you have been washed clean. And so by the, by the Spirit's power, you can live in a pure and holy and upright way. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18 says, Come, let's settle this. Though your sins are scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are crimson red, they will be like wool. There's a third reason now that Jesus gave himself for us. He gave himself to possess us. Look what Paul says as he goes on. He says, to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession. Yeah, so before Christ came and died for us, we belonged to Satan, as it were. We were his slaves. We were living out our lives under his cruel rule. We were doing what he wanted us to do. But now, through the cross, we become God's special people. Now we've become God's belongings. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 to 10 says this, But you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Fourth, and this is so important for what we're going to be talking about this morning. Jesus gave himself for us in order to use us. Look at what it says at the very end. What kind of people does Paul say we are? A people for his own possession, eager to do good works. Yeah, so through the cross, God has made us now, in Christ, into a new people, a new kind of people. And what kind of people are we? Well, we're a people who are eager for good works. I mean, the Greek word is the word that gives us the word zeal. That we are zealous for good works. That we're characterized by this. That we have an intense zeal to do good works as we live our lives. So, look at the grace of the gospel. Look at what Christ has accomplished for us. He has redeemed us from our slavery to sin. He's purified us. He's made us his own possession. And he has good works for us to do. Because he's made us a people who are characterized by good works. Now, what are those good works? Uh, in the immediate context here in chapter 2, you see it's, it's kind of this beautiful godly life that's been described in verses 1 to 10 of chapter 2. Whether we're in our home or we're out in the workplace, wherever we are, we're characterized by godliness. And in particular, we're characterized by an eagerness and a zeal to do good works. But for the purpose of our sermon this morning, I want us to note that these good works definitely include good works done to those who are poor and needy in our community for the sake of proclaiming the gospel to them so that they might know the Savior. So for the rest of our time this morning, I want us to flesh out this reality and think about this issue of our church and we as individual believers being eager to do good works and being characterized by that. Now, if you have the bulletin that was handed out to you, I have five questions that I want us to work our way through as we think about this. First question, why is it vital that individual Christians and local churches be committed to doing good works for the poor and needy in our community? Why is that important? Why is that vital? Let me give you five reasons why that's vital. 
first, God is glorified when his people do good works in the community. Listen to what Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 to 16 says. Adam read this for us earlier. He says, you are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand. And it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Politicians are fond of saying that America is the light of the world. Politicians are wrong. The church is the light of the world. We are light. It is our nature to shine forth the character of God because we are the people of God. And that means something. It means that we are to actively let our light shine. We're to self-consciously do this in a way that people can see the godliness in our lives. They can see that we're like Him, in particular that non-believers can look at our lives and see that we are filled with good works. And few things are more beautiful, and you see it in the life of Christ so clearly, than doing good works to those who are poor and needy and suffering. And so our purpose in doing these beautiful good works would be to draw the attention of those who are watching us to the one who is ultimately the source of those good works, and that is God. And what we're talking about is God letting his light shine through us before others so they see him for who he is and they see the source of the goodness of these people is the good God and they worship him. They become his followers. They glorify him. Second, good works opens up avenues for gospel proclamation. As we minister to the real needs in our community, we have to remember that the greatest needs anyone has is not physical. No, the greatest needs are spiritual. The greatest need anyone has is for a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The greatest need anyone has is to be saved. They need Jesus. That is why our good works must always be combined with faithful gospel proclamation. That we're preaching Christ as we're doing so. And this is precisely where doing good works is so valuable. As we minister to the, the physical and emotional needs of those around us, we're opening up opportunities for relationship. And through those relationships, the gospel can flow so that people can be impacted by the gospel. You see, by meeting physical needs, we open up the opportunity to talk with them about their greatest need, which is their spiritual need for Jesus Christ. I love what Charles Spurgeon had to say about this. He said, I would that we who have a purer faith could remember a little more the intimate connection between the body and the soul. Go to the poor man and tell him of the bread of heaven, but first give him the bread of earth. For how shall he hear you with a starving body? Talk to him of the robes of Jesus' righteousness, but you will do it better when you have provided a garment with which he may cover his nakedness. It seems an idle tale to a poor man if you talk to him of spiritual things and cruelly refuse him help as to temporals. You ask a person to hear your preacher, but he knows that you're crotchety, short-tempered, illiberal, and he's not likely to think much of the word which, as he thinks, has made you what you are. But if, on the other hand, he sees your compassionate spirit, 
He will first be attracted to you and next to what you have to say. And then you may lead him with a thread and bring him to listen to the truth as it is in Jesus. Who can but tell thus, through the sympathy of your heart, you may be the means of bringing him to Christ. Now we meet the physical needs so that we can then meet the spiritual needs. Third, Christians and churches should be committed to doing good works because this is what Jesus did. And after all, we're called Christians. And what does that mean? It means we follow Jesus. Uh, Jesus was mighty in both word and deed. He spoke God's word powerfully. No one spoke like him. But he combined that word with, with matchless works of mercy and compassion over and over as he fed the hungry and he healed the sick. He was characterized by compassion for those who were hurting. And we, brothers and sisters, are Jesus' disciples. And that means something. It means that our lives need to look like his. When people see us, when they look at us, they should see something of Christ's compassion in our lives. It's light. It should be visible. It should be seeable. They should notice it. They should notice uh, this is a people who's marked by compassion. Uh, they're like Jesus. Fourth, we've been commanded to demonstrate compassion to the poor and needy. Listen to 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 to 18. If anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need, but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? Little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in action and in truth. Now, this command is first and foremost a command that believers, Christians, would take care of other Christians who have physical and other needs. But our good works should not stop just with Christians. Why? Because Galatians 6 verse 10 says, As we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially those who are of the household of faith. Fifth, ministering to the poor and needy is part of what it means to be a healthy church. So, so think about it this way. You have a man, he has a, a good mind, he's a good set of lungs, strong, strong mouth, strong lips, but his heart and his hands and his feet are weak. What kind of man is that? That's an unhealthy man. And in the same way, if you have a church, has sound doctrine and strong preaching, but it lacks love and compassion for those who are hurting, and it doesn't move towards them with hands and feet that are there to serve them, what kind of church is that? It's an unhealthy church. And we want to be a healthy church. We want to be a group of people who are like Jesus. We want good theology and sound preaching. You have to understand how vital doctrine is. You see how Paul roots all of this in the doctrine, the reality of the gospel? It's so vital, but it can't stop with the doctrine. It has to move forward into acts of love. It has to move forward into acts of service. We want a heart that is filled with love and compassion and hands and feet that are active serving those in need. I hope, as you hear those five reasons, you're encouraged to be thinking about what it would mean for us to, to minister to those who are poor and needy around us in our community. Again, the, the blessing here is that this is not just an obligation. This is a way that we get to glorify God. Now, this is a way that we get to honor and follow Jesus. 
This is a way that we get to promote the gospel in our community. Now there's a second question. Are you saying that every member of Christ Fellowship must be actively involved in practically ministering and meeting needs of the poor in our community? No, I'm not quite saying that, but I'm going to get really close. I'm not quite saying that because you have to understand that those words, good works, that's a very broad category. And you see that from verses 1 to 10 where it talks about what a, a life that's filled with good works looks like. And it's all kinds of things. Uh, it, it looks like being a faithful church member, right? It, it looks like being a, a faithful husband and a faithful wife and, and good fathers and mothers. And it, it looks like being good friends. And it looks like being a, a hard worker in the community. It's, it's a life that's filled with good works, all kinds of good works. But it certainly includes, listen, it certainly includes good works that are actively done for the sake of ministering to those who are poor and needy and suffering. It certainly includes that. It has to. And even though we should all desire to care for the poor and needy around us, we do know providentially sometimes we're hindered from directly being involved in that kind of work. So, so for some of us, due to age or due to illness, we're just physically not able to be actively out there doing the hard work of mercy ministry. That's okay. You know why? Because we can still pray for others who are. We can do that. There are seasons of life that can hinder us from being involved in caring for the poor. That's true. Uh, a young mother with little ones has her hands quite full. Her first priority is caring for these little ones that the Lord has entrusted to her. But she can still, by His grace, find little opportunities to do good things for people who are around her. But while there are times when some people are not able to be directly involved in doing good works and acts of mercy, I do believe very firmly that we all have the ability to be involved in some way. So maybe it's not directly, but in some way we're involved. So in this war against Satan, not everyone can fly the jets, not everyone can you know, man the machine guns. But if we can't do those things, well, we can bring the fuel and we can bring the ammunition, can't we? There's something we can do. There's some way that we can serve. We can't all be directly involved in caring for the poor, but we can do something. We can pray. Some of us can give. The rest of us can go and do the work. And I'm asking this, and I'm really asking this question for us just to think about. Why wouldn't we want to be this kind of church? Why wouldn't we want this? Why wouldn't we want to be a church that blesses and serves its community the way the Lord Jesus has blessed and served us? Why wouldn't we want that? Why wouldn't we want to be a church that brings glory to God and is better equipped to spread the gospel because we're out there intentionally opening up relationships through which the gospel can spread? Because we're light. And we're not supposed to hide the light under a bushel. It's supposed to go forward from us. I want to be a part of a church like that. A third question I think is an important one. Peter, are you beginning to preach the social gospel? I think that's an important question. I think you should be thinking uh, about that. In the early 20th century, there was a liberal Baptist pastor. His name was Walter Rauschenbusch. He began to promote what he called the social gospel at its heart. The social gospel is the idea that the primary task of the church is to meet the needs of the poor and so transform the community. So, in the idea of the social gospel, the idea is that the church's primary agenda is social reform. It focuses on meeting physical needs as opposed to saving souls. It's a very this-world religion. Here and now. Physical. 
really it's socialism masking itself and masquerading as Christianity. That's what it is in its essence. It's a false gospel. And I'm not proclaiming it. And we want nothing to do with it. I am advocating, though, what Alex de Prima in this book, Spurgeon and the Poor, which I encourage all of you to read, Spurgeon and the Poor, super helpful, calls social concern. It's the idea that those who follow Jesus should be concerned about those who are poor and those who are suffering and those who are in need in the community around them. And they should seek to meet those needs in a way that brings glory to God and spreads the gospel. Friends, we should not be a church that sits back and says, we don't need to care for the poor because that's the government's job. Because that's not the government's job. We want to be a church that says, Lord, where are the needs that we can meet and give us the resources to meet those needs so that your gospel can go forth through this church and people can be saved in our community. Brothers and sisters, caring for the poor and needy was at the heart of Jesus' ministry. And so it must be at the heart of our ministry if we're going to follow him. So a fourth question. How should our church respond as we begin 2024? Let me give you three steps that we can take. First, evaluate your own heart on this matter. Just think about your own heart. Take a moment and just think about your own heart. Do you have a category for actively doing good works in the community, meeting physical and emotional needs in a way that opens up opportunities for the gospel of Jesus Christ to go forward? As I evaluated my own heart over the past few weeks, I realized that at some point along the way, this really has stopped being a focus in my life. It really has. And I thought about, well, when did that happen? Because there was a time in my life when I was doing things in homeless communities, and even early on in the life of our church, we were trying to you know, impact different people and ESL classes and just different things we were doing. And for me, I think it, I think it really started during COVID in 2020. It was such a hard season, right? Like, and particularly if you were in leadership in the church, you have to understand, you have no idea how many thousands of pastors left the pastorate during COVID. I mean, it was thousands upon thousands. I mean, pastors just falling to the wayside over and over and over because, because things kept changing and moving and rules and regulations and stress and conflict and division and church. I mean, Satan had a heyday, had a heyday. It was super distracting. It was super hard. And somewhere along the way, I think really in my heart, you know, I got distracted because we're just pulled apart, you know, just pulled apart. And we're just trying to keep this thing moving forward in the same direction. But God has, by his grace, been stirring a desire in me to grow in this area in my life. And maybe you're like me. Maybe you need to grow in this area, too. Second step, pray for God's guidance on how he would have you serve. Many of us would like to be involved in this kind of ministry, but honestly, we really don't know where to begin. Like, what does that even look like? Like, how do we honestly do that well, right? I mean, it can be done so poorly. How do we do that well? Well, we begin with prayer. And we ask God as a church, this is why it's important to come to the corporate prayer service when we gather together as a church to pray, because we're, we're going to God together to pray, and we're asking him for things. And one of the things that we're asking him for is for wisdom, that he would guide our church. The Lord intends to guide this church directly, you know, through his word. By his spirit, he intends to do that. He has good works for us to walk in as a church. We need to pray and ask him to guide us. 
and to give us wisdom on what this looks like. And then we need to rest and know that our God is a God who gives wisdom to those who act. But we can't stop with prayer. A third step is that we must zealously do good works. Why? Because Titus 2 verse 14 tells us that's who we are. We're people who are eager for good works. That means we must actually get about the task of doing those good works. Why? Because Satan doesn't care how good our intentions are as long as we do nothing with it. But what he's concerned about is that good intentions will actually transform into actual good deeds done for the sake of blessing others and seeing the gospel go forward in our community. A final question. What might it look like for us to be involved in ministering to the poor and needy in our community? Well, for Charles Spurgeon and his Metropolitan Tabernacle, caring for the poor and needy really was at the heart of what they did. It meant that they founded some 66 benevolent ministries all throughout the city of London for the sake, in some way or another, of meeting the needs of individuals so that the gospel could go through them. So they started the Stockwell Orphanage. Spurgeon built homes for widows. They started Sunday schools and ragged schools because there was no public education, so they're educating the poor children in their community. They started a ministry to the blind. They did many other things as well. It's really an amazing story of grace. And again, I want to I wanna encourage you to consider reading Alex DePrima's book, Spurgeon and the Poor, I think you'll be incredibly encouraged by it. Now, it's going to look different for us. We're not nearly as big of a church, and we live in a very different age. In many ways, the government actually has come into this area, and the government has, in many ways, taken over this area and put a whole bunch of rules in place. And sometimes those are helpful, and sometimes they're not helpful. And so we're going to need wisdom to think about what it looks like for this church in this age in Williamsburg, Virginia, to know how we can serve the Lord by meeting the needs of those in our community who are suffering. Now, last week, I sent out an email because I wanted to hear, well, what are the ways that we're, we're already doing this? How, how is it that we are reaching out to our community as a church? And I was encouraged by the responses that I got from various people in the church. I won't be able to list everyone by name, but here's some of what's going on in Christ Fellowship. Many of us are involved in supporting CareNet uh, Resource Pregnancy Center, uh, we're either doing that financially, some of us are serving as mentors to young women who are at risk. Peter Budnickus is using his musical talents. He's ministering to a group of severely handicapped individuals on a monthly basis. John Thompson is leading Cambridge House, which is ministering to the students and faculty of William and Mary. And you might think, well, how's that a mercy ministry? Well, just you have to understand how lonely college students are. You have to understand part of that ministry is just developing relationships and meeting actual needs for the sake of sharing Christ with them and showing them that this person, Jesus, is glorious and beautiful and attractive. Several of our people financially support the Lackey Free Clinic. Sandy Turner works to empower women who've been victims of human trafficking. Several members of our church are praying about beginning a good news Bible club in a local elementary school in 2024. I really love that. I think that's a big opportunity for us. Uh, you know, many of us have concerns and questions about how public education is going. Well, we could grumble about it, or we could do something. Those are really the two options we have. I think it's a great opportunity for some of us anyways. Maybe we can reach some families with the gospel as we minister to the needs of these children. Lois and Terry Leake support, Week support the work of Proclaiming Grace Outreach in Lenexa. John Reffitt and John Coker are both involved in prison ministry in our local prisons. Clifton Bell is leading his community group to reach out to and minister to the Pineapple 
uh, in on Richmond Road, which does work with J1 students, HB2 visa workers, and homelessly or precariously homed individuals. And others of you are serving in other ways as well. And so by God's grace, there's actually work that's happening in this church as we're seeking to reach out to our community. And what I'm praying is that in 2024, there's going to be a focus here because I think the Lord would have us grow here. I think the Lord would have us impact this city in different ways and in new ways. And here's the question for me, as I think about my life, as I think about my children, where they are, as I think about my schedule, where it is, as I think about the church and all the different things that we're trying to do with, with, uh, with building a new building, Lord willing, so that we can all gather together and worship the Lord together. The question for me in 2024 is, where will I personally get involved? What's it going to look like for me to get involved personally in this year? And that's really the question I want to leave you with as well this morning. If you aren't currently serving the poor and needy in our community, how would God have you serve? What would God have you do? As we begin this year, I'm excited to think about what God may do through us as we reach out as light for the sake of doing good to those who are needy and suffering. And you know what? It makes sense for us to do this. Why? Because Titus chapter 2, verse 14 tells us that's the kind of people we are in Christ. That we're eager for good works. So may God give us wisdom as we seek to bring glory to Him and spread His gospel in this new year. Let's pray. Oh Lord, when we hear stories of the way that you have used brothers and sisters throughout the ages to minister to the physical and emotional and spiritual needs of people, we are so encouraged. And Lord, we are encouraged this morning because you are the same. You're the God who did it then. You're the God who does it now. And you can, by your Holy Spirit, do it more and more through us. And we're praying as we begin this new year that you would help us. Lord, be with the elders as we discuss these things and pray about these things. Lord, be with our congregation as we pray and, and ask questions about what it would look like for us to be eager to do good works. Oh, Lord, I pray that you give us great wisdom and I pray that you give us great resolve and I pray that you would do great things through us because it's only you who can do so. And I pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen.